Well, over the past few years at Grace Church, I've been given the unique opportunity to go to seminary while I work here. And I just want to thank you. The church has actually graciously helped pay for that and, and have provided uh, in prayer. The Eisenbrowns ask me every week, uh, how are you doing? And I always say, it's hard. Uh, and, I, and I complain about it, but it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I'm not only paid to study the Bible, but I get to go to school and learn about it academically. And what I found is that I get to study it devotionally and academically, but I found that those two things are inseparable. When we open the Bible, uh, it, it can't just be academic. It can't just be about a conversation. It's always devotional. And so over my time, I've had a little bit of a break from the past couple years of classes. I've had a couple weeks to just think about what I've been studying and about the Bible. And that's what I wanted to talk about this morning is about how the Bible is always devotional and how we should always be devoted to it as Christians. And so I picked a passage, Psalm 19, and we're going to dig into it. We're going to go through it. But first, I want to talk about this apple. Uh, If consumed, this apple has a lot of really good benefits. It has uh, tons of minerals. It has calcium. uh, It has um, copper and iron. It's uh, free of sodium and uh, things that are bad for you, like fat and cholesterol, it has antioxidants in it. It has uh, potassium fiber, or vitamin C, vitamin B. It has all these things. It has water in it, so it's hydrating for you. Uh, and it's got energy in it. So this apple has a lot of worth to it. And so for this analogy, you have this apple and you walk around with it. And you know it's worth. But let's say for the analogy that you are starving. How much more are you going to give worth to this apple? How much more uh, does, it, does it mean to you? Does it mean more to you? Now, for this analogy, you're starving, but you never eat the apple. But you walk around with it, you show it off to people, you polish it, you you keep it in your pocket, and and then you come along to another starving person, and you say, hey, you should get one of these. Uh, There's a lot of benefits to it. Uh, It has calcium and iron in it. It's fat-free. There's water. You can be hydrated by it. Uh, And he says, well, yours looks kind of gross. And you're like, well, I've never eaten it. I just carry it around with me. This analogy falls short in a lot of ways, but this is how Christians often treat the Bible. Uh, Today, we carry the Bible in our pocket everywhere we go. Uh, We come and listen to it all the time, but we rarely consume it. Uh, It's it's hard, it's difficult, and we forget. And so I just want us to think about that analogy for a minute. Uh, Are we consuming the Word of God, uh, or are we just carrying it around? So uh, I want you to stay in Psalm 19, and I want you to follow along with me in the Word. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the chair next to you, and you can open to that page. But we're going to go through it section by section. Uh, I chose this passage in uh, a couple weeks ago, and then on Wednesday, I decided that it was a huge mistake to pick this passage, uh, but it was past the point of no return. And so, uh, but I think that this passage should be preached in three different sermons, but since I talk so fast, I can put three sermons into one sermon, is what we decided. Uh, last service, I preached the sermon seven minutes faster than when I practiced it. So that's, and, and Tom said that that's impressive. So, uh, so uh, Psalm 19 is the passage that we're going to read. Uh, the uh, author, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he once said this about this psalm. It is the greatest poem in the Psalter and the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, that's saying a lot. If you know about C.S. Lewis, he's a, an amazing author. Uh, but he, uh, he says that it's the best poem in the Psalter and the greatest lyrics in the world. This is a psalm written by David in a, around 1000 B.C. And we can, it's very obvious the psalm is split into three sections. And so we're going to go through those three sections, and I've given titles to each. 
and, and they're on the, they're on the uh, board here. It's words. Uh, the first section is words about a God. The second section is words from the God. And the third is words to our God. Now, the reason why I thought it was a mistake to pick the psalm is because it's incredibly complex. Psalm 19 is wild. Uh, the three sections don't seem to fit together. Uh, some people think that they're separate songs that were added together by David. They were put together. But what we're going to find in the end is that there was reason and purpose that they're together. And it's, it's quite fascinating. So, section one, words about a God. So if you pick it up, there's a few indicators that show that the first section is separate from the next section, and it's in the way that it talks about God, in, in the title, actually. And so in your English translation, how does it refer to God? It just says God, right? In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. And it's the, when the Bible opens, it's Genesis 1.1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And when that title is used, it's this generic term. It's the category for who God is. Uh, It's the idea that he is the creator. Uh, But when it gets into Genesis 2, uh, when he creates mankind, his name changes. If you look, it doesn't just say God. It says the Lord God. And in the Hebrew, it's very interesting. It's actually his name which we don't know how to pronounce it. It's Y-H-W-H, and, but we translate it Lord. But it's this personal name that's given to God. So Genesis 1, we have the creator, and then Genesis 2, we have this personal name uh, that creates mankind. It's this personal relationship with God. And that's important to know. If you look in verse 7, it's not, it doesn't say God. It's, it's his name. It says the Lord. So in this first section, keep in mind, it's talking about this uh, impersonal name, this, this God that we know is there. That's how the first section starts. So uh, we know that God uh, is the creator. We know that he's set apart. Uh, but uh, we also know in that name that we are separate from him. So uh, in this first section, we read this. It starts, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so in this sentence, we have a double description here of the same idea. It starts with heavens, and it moves to sky. And at the end of the section, it talks about the sun. And so when we read heavens, we know it's not some spiritual thing in the sky that it's referring to. It's talking about any time you look up, that's the heavens, that's the sky. When you look at the sun, it's saying something. What is it saying? It's declaring something. It's proclaiming something. Uh, it's his glory in his handiwork. And so, uh, first, his glory. What does the word glory mean? Uh, when you look up at the sky, you see God's glory. Uh, I heard an analogy, and I really liked it, so I made it my own. I'm stealing it, and I'm going to talk about Tom. He's no longer in here. But uh, when you walk into Tom's office, you are surrounded by books. When you walk in, he loves his books, all right? And you can tell by how many he has. And then you um, can see on the back of his door, he has these uh, pictures that are drawn by his grandkids. He has a picture of all of his fam- pictures of all of his family, a picture of his wife on his desk. In his drawer, he has these fountain pens that he really loves. They're really expensive, and he just cherishes them. Uh, I'm sure in some of the drawers, he has love letters from Laura that he really appreciates. And when Tom sits in his swivel chair in his office, he's surrounded by his glory, okay, if you think of it that way. Uh, the Hebrew for the word actually is, it has an uh, idea of weight, and so if we were to take all of Tom's thing in his, things in his office and we were to put them on a scale, it would be a measure of his glory. All right? In the same way, 
if we were to look up in the sky and we see the stars and the moon and, we, and the, everything in the whole universe, and we were to put it onto a scale, it'd be a measure of God's glory. Does that make sense? But when we look up into the sky, we're always taken aback because it's immeasurable. God's glory is vast. And so it says when we look up, we see that God's glory is, is immeasurable. It's, it's amazing, and it's always telling us that. Uh, but more, it says that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So what does that mean? Uh, in, in other words, when a person looks up in the sky, a person sees creation, and creation itself is proclaiming there has to be a creator. This is work. This is an, an art piece. Uh, it's it's an early rendition of, of Plato's uh, or Aristotle's cosmological argument. If you've heard of that before, it's this idea that there's a need for an uncaused cause. If there's a creation, there has to be a creator. Look at creation. If there's creation, there's a creator. And the psalm is, continues. He says this, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And he closes this uh, section with a specific uh, example about the sun, right? A part of the cosmos. And it talks about what the sun's, how it rises, how it sets, how everyone in the world can see the sun. It has a purpose. And when we see those things, we see that there has to be order. There's order to the universe, and that means there has to be someone who set that order in motion. When someone walks outside, whether you're on the ground, whether you're in a plane, if you look up, you see that there's a need for a creator. Uh, whenever I have a conversation with an atheist, I often begin the conversation with trying to convince them that they're an agnostic. And uh, it, it actually sometimes works, uh, but uh, what Scripture is saying is that everyone who looks up, everyone has seen that there is a God. Uh, Romans quotes this passage, and it says, people are without excuse. If they've seen, if they've looked up, that nature cries out, someone created this. There is a God. God exists. And almost always, I've gotten people to either say that there is a God or say that they at least wish that there was a God uh, because the implications are sad. And there's so much proof that God exists. There's, there's just the same amount or, if not more, proof that God exists even outside of Scripture. But what Scripture is saying here is that every person who proclaims to be an atheist, that there is no God, uh, is in denial. Because even they have heard the voice. There's no one in the world who has not heard the voice of nature crying out, there is a God. His glory is inescapable. But before moving into the next section, it's important to know that these words are about a God. This is an impersonal God. And so if the psalm ended here, this would not be the most beautiful psalm in the Bible. It'd actually be a really sad psalm. Uh, there's nothing in this section that talks about who God is, uh, how he cares about his people, how he loves you. And so it's really important that it's attached to this next section. But if you think about it this way, this passage, if it ended here, it'd be like Romans 3.23 just saying, uh, for, the, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's it, right? But it continues. And, and thankfully, so does this passage. Uh, nature is not enough to tell us who God is. We need something else. We need other words than the words of nature. Uh, God is personal. As that brings us to section two, words from the God. So it starts in verse seven. If you look there with me, 
Uh, it's a poem, and so it's laid out in a very specific way. There are six nouns, there are six adjectives, and there are six verbs. And so if you look here on verse 7, uh, the nouns are all the, at the beginning of each section. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. And if you go down, all of them are synonyms for the same thing. They all represent scripture. So the second section is not talking about the fact that there is a God. It's talking about the fact that God has spoken to his people. Okay? Uh, now, the nouns and the verbs, or the verbs and the adjectives do something very specific. Uh, the adjectives describe the perfection of the word, and then the verbs describe the power of the word. And so I want to walk through each of those uh, together quickly. The first is uh, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, all right? It's, it's perfect. It's, so the rest of them are kind of a synonym to, that, but they, synonyms to that, but it grows. There are no flaws. Everything in here is meant to be there. It's perfect. Second, uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure. That's another way of saying it's trustworthy. We can trust what it says. Uh, the third is the precepts of the Lord are right, Another word for that in Hebrew would be like a straight or a straight edge. And so when we see scripture, uh, it's like a, a, a tool that allows us to have, have a standard in which we measure everything else. It's, it's perfectly straight. And every, everything else in the world, everything that we discern is discerned by the straight edge. The precepts of the Lord are right uh, and I already did that. Oh, I didn't do that one. Yes, that is right. That's, that's the straight edge. Uh, the precepts of the Lord are right. Uh, the commandments of the Lord is pure. Uh, all of these words. This is a, a difficult one for people to fathom because uh, sometimes scripture rubs hard against the culture in which we're in and we don't see it as being pure. But what scripture is saying here is that it is pure. These are the things that are right. And sometimes it, it, it rubs us the wrong way, but it's true. It's, it's pure. It's good. Every word in here is good. Uh, five, uh, clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. Uh, this is a word often used in, old, in the Old Testament, especially in the law. They saw things as clean and unclean, and if something bad happened to it, then it become unclean, and they had to go through this process to clean it. Well, this is saying that the word, um, that it's, it's clean. It's, it's never something that is tainted. It's, it's always clean. It's always pure. And the last one are that it's true. Every word. Uh, Everything that is in here is right. If there is a promise made, it's kept, and we can trust it. Uh, now, the second uh, are the, the verbs. These reveal the power of the word of God. The first is this. The, the scripture has the power to revive the soul. Now, if you uh, remember the last time I preached, don't worry if you don't. I, I barely remember. Uh, <clears throat> I talked about the soul. And how Jewish people saw that differently than the Greeks did. And we have kind of a Greek understanding of soul, that it's some separate spiritual being, and that we're body, and that we have a soul. But the way Scripture talks about soul is incredibly different from that. Soul represents everything that we are, who we are, kind of like our identity is our soul. And so uh, a translator or a commentator said this. He says that a better way to translate this might be this. The Scripture has the power to show you who you are. Scripture has the power to show you who you are. When you read Scripture, you don't find out what you are supposed to be like. It's what you were meant to be like. 
Uh, scripture has the power to show you who you are. Second, uh, it has the power to make wise the simple. Reading scripture makes you wise. Who would have guessed that, right? That's an obvious one. Uh, but some people, it's not talking about just some certain people who are simple-minded. We are all simple-minded, right? Can we agree to that? And I can prove it to you. Uh, talk to anyone who's 30, and they'll say, when I was 15, I made dumb mistakes, right? If you talk to someone who's 30, they'll say, or 40, they'll say, when I was 30, I made really dumb mistakes. If you talk to someone who's 80, they'll say, when I was 50, I made really dumb mistakes. Well, that means we're dumb now, right? We're simple-minded now. Uh, in, in the older we get, we look back and we say, I would have, wish I would have done things differently. Uh, well, reading scripture helps us to know now the decisions we should be making. It helps us to not be simple-minded, but to be wise. Three, it has the power to rejoice the heart. Remember when I opened service with Psalm 1? It's the same thing. Scripture has the power to bring us joy. That's an interesting one for me. That was one I actually got stuck on. Because how do rules and regulations and commandments make me happy? Because a lot of this is talking about the law of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. Uh, but, but it does. And I'm going to come back to that. Uh, but it's, it's a promise that Scripture brings us joy. Uh, four, it has the power to enlighten the eyes. Scripture is like we're blind before that. And when we read Scripture, our eyes are open to see uh, what things are meant to be, what's right and what's wrong. The next one has the power to endure forever. I'll prove it too. This was written 3,000 years ago, and we're still reading it. It has the power to endure forever. It's still applicable. Number six, it is, uh, has the power uh, to be righteous altogether. Another way to say that would be that um, together all of these things are righteous. That it's not just parts of Scripture are good and parts of Scripture are okay all of them work together, and they're all good. They're all right. And so these are choice words for Scripture. They're, they're strong. The Word of God is perfect, and the Word of God is powerful. And David continues, and, and he says this, We should desire Scripture more than gold, and not just gold, but fine gold. I thought about this, and I, and I thought, if someone told me to read the Bible, it challenged me to read the Bible every day for at least an hour for the next year, I would pull out my calendar and I would say, look at how busy I am, right? I'm pretty busy. I don't think I can fit that in. And they said, well, at the end of the year, if you do it, I'll give you a pound of gold, which is worth like $16,000. I'd be like, well, let me work around my schedule and see how I can fit that in. (laughs) And that's the kind of heart that we should have. That's the kind of motivation we should have to read the scripture. It's better than the gold. What we get from scripture is better than that. Uh, David expands it even further, and he says, our desire for Scripture is is that like the sweetness of honey, and not just honey, but honey from the honeycomb. Now, I was confused by that, so I went to our beekeeper. Her name's Jody. I went down to her office the other day, and I said, what do you think this means? Because I'm kind of confused. And bees are amazing. Jody can share a lot about bees, Jody DeYoung. And she said that actually, uh, when it's in the honeycomb, it's perfectly preserved, And people have found honeycombs uh, with honey still in them from uh, thousands of years ago in tombs. And when you break it open, the honey is still fresh. It's perfect. It's still sweet. And so in ancient Israel, honey was used for the standard of sweetness. But when it came from the honeycomb, it was perfectly fresh. And so when we think of Scripture, it's the same way. Every time we read it, it's just as fresh, just like we're breaking it out of the honeycomb. It's just as sweet. We should desire it like we desire that sweetness, and it's that good for us. It's desirable. And then he closes this 
part of the stanza here in verse 11, he says this, by them, your servant is warned. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is another verse I'm going to come back to at the end. Uh, But the point is this. Reading scripture has great reward. It has great benefit. So the word of God is perfect. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is valuable. The word of God is desirable. And living by the word gives you reward. So let's look back at the larger section because it's, it's hard to make these sections fit together, but they do. The first section talks about a God that is uh, distant. It's a, it's a God that's just a creator. Uh, we don't know anything about that God. Uh, but the second section reveals a God who has uh, uniquely revealed himself to his people and that we can know him through reading the word and living by it. But again, if the psalm ended here, it still could not be considered the best psalm in the Psalter. Uh, it, it would be sad because what we, what we know by living this out, has anyone kept the word? Can anyone live by what the standard has here? Uh, verse 11, we know that the opposite is true. By breaking these rules, uh, there's great punishment. So if it ended here, it would be just as sad, and reading the Bible would be just as cold as knowing an unknown God. So section three is really important. Words to our God. The third section is a prayer by David. And this old church father uh, named Athanasius once said this. He said, most of scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. The Psalms are really, really amazing because the writers didn't give us specific scenarios all the time uh, about what they were. So when we read them, they can be easily applied to our heart and the prayers can become our prayers. And so when we read this section, uh, it can become our prayer and actually it should become our prayer. But notice its first line. This is a very important verse. We have to understand this verse for the rest of the psalm. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? That's how he starts his prayer. Now, that's a rhetorical question. And we know uh, what rhetorical questions mean, that the answer is obvious. So what's the answer? Who Who can discern his errors? No one. So instead, you could write, no one, he could have said, no one can discern his errors. And so he begins his prayer with recognizing that I sin, but I don't even know how much I sin. Uh, There's something inside of me that, that I know that I can't even find out about myself. No one can discern that. And so if we were to take a scale and put all of the sins that we know on it, and we try to balance it out, uh, we couldn't do it because we don't even know how much sin is on that other side. That's his admission here. I don't even know how much I sin. But he keeps going, and he, and he shares three pleas. He says this. Uh, first, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. So the first request of his prayer isn't, God, help, help me to follow the Bible. Help me to do what's right. It's actually an admission that he can't, that he needs help. And, and he just says, I just need your forgiveness. Right? I can't keep your commandments Just make me innocent. A second plea is this. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Another way of saying that might be, just help me, me God, to to not sin willfully. And so David's covering his butt really well here, right? He's saying, forgive me for sins that I don't know about. Hold me back from sins I know I shouldn't be doing. And then he ends it like this. He ends his last plea. Let them not have dominion over me. 
Now, dominion is a very important word. Uh, it's, it's this idea that sin dominates us. And without God's help, we can have no freedom from sin. Uh, we can memorize scripture. We can read it all the time. We can uh, try and live by it and, and, and know it like the Pharisees knew it. But without God's help, David's admission here, without salvation, we are chained to sin. It dominates over us. That's an interesting prayer coming off of the section that, it, that preceded it. And so he says, these are the pleas I have. And then, the next part, then and only then, I will be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Once you have declared me innocent, once you hold me back from these sins, once you free me from the dominion of sin, only then can I be blameless and innocent before you. Now, those words in the Old Testament were always used when talking about uh, sacrifices. And so when someone was to bring a sacrifice for their sin, it needed to be pure, it needed to be innocent, it needed to be, another word could be, without blemish. And that's what God wants from us. That's what God demands from us. And what David does here is that he admits that I am not that. But how does he come with some such confidence saying, uh, if you do these things, then I'll be blameless. You will see me as blameless and innocent. Now, this is the important part. Notice here that David is pointing to Jesus. If you read this prayer, this is like the salvation prayer in itself. Oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I need your help. And notice the last word of the psalm. Look at it. Redeemer. Savior. David's viewpoint of God is what makes him innocent. He knows that he needs God's salvation. The only part left out of the salvation prayer is him asking God to come inside his heart. I guess that's not biblical. But uh, do you see that this psalm points to Jesus? It requires Jesus. God is a redeemer through the cross. And so when we read scripture, we are meant to read it with that kind of freedom. Uh, not like the first section where it's, we're chained to it and we have to follow it to get the reward. The gospel's in verse 11, right? By following it, there's great reward. But by not following it, there's punishment. We don't follow it, we're supposed to be punished. But Jesus followed it perfectly and he's giving us that reward. How much better is it to read scripture with that kind of heart? How much more do we want to follow the commands knowing that it's been done for us? If we don't read scripture in that way, the Bible won't be a joy to us. It won't be as sweet as honey. It won't be precious as gold. And it will be as cold and as impersonal as the God of the first section. But as Christians, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with a prayer like this, scripture becomes more alive to us than ever before. And it does all the things that the second section says. It revives our soul. It tells us who we are. It makes us wise. It makes us rejoice. It opens our eyes. It offers great reward. This, set, this last section is so important to the second section as Christians. Uh, and, and then we see what verse 11 means to us. It's the gospel presented here. This is why scripture is a delight to us. So I'm not done yet, but to conclude this passage, if, if you're an unbeliever, look around you and see that creation demands a creator. Creation is constantly speaking the fact that there's a God. It's, it's whispering to you. It's singing to you with this inaudible voice saying, God is real. God is real. God is real. But note that that is not enough to know who that God is. 
right? The artwork isn't enough to know uh, the artist. But God has met us uh, in Scripture. He's revealed himself to us, and he's given us something better, an audible voice, a voice that's not easy to misinterpret, but one that we can know for sure who God is and what he's done for us. And so this prayer right here is the prayer that you pray to know who God is. It's the entrance into that salvation to declare God your redeemer. And if you read Scripture, you'll find that uh, that theme throughout all of scripture, that you need a savior and, he, and God has sent him that and we can have a relationship with him. Now, if you're a believer, which means that you have prayed this prayer and you have this heart of genuine humility and a need before God, I want to urge you, read the Bible. Feast on the Bible. Feast on it. Make 2019 the year that you complete the Bible cover to cover if you've never done that before. If you've already done that, make it the second time. If you've done that, make it the third time. Maybe this will be a year where you just focus on one book. Maybe it's a year you focus on one verse. Whatever it is, I urge you as a believer, we get to know the God um, in Scripture, and he's speaking to us. How can we not engage with that? So uh, if you claim to know the God of the Bible, Put effort into that relationship. He has spoken to you in scripture and he continues to speak through it. Uh, don't carry it around your pocket, consume it. So uh, to finish, I wrote down a list of excuses of why we don't want to read the Bible. And I know them well because I am uh, the one who makes the excuses. And I am the king of excuses. You can ask my sisters right down here. Uh, they can tell you that's true. So first excuse, I don't like to read and I'm not good at reading. There's a lot to say to that, but first, I just want to let you know that we live in the most literate time in all of history. More people can read today than ever before. It's, it's growing incredibly fast. Actually, uh, in 1820, only 12% of people in the world could read. Uh, by 2016, 87% of the world can read, yet we act like the most illiterate generation of all time. No one reads anymore, and, and we take for granted what people wanted years and years ago. And I'd say since the invention of the radio, the television, the computer, and now the smartphone, we settle for such simple information when we have the opportunity to read great things. And so I'd encourage you, don't, be, uh, don't become like the culture. Christians have to be countercultural. We have to read. Uh, we have to read Scripture. And if you don't like reading or you're not good, of it, good at it, almost every app that you have on your phone that has the Bible on it reads it to you. And so you can act as illiterate as you want and still get scripture uh, into your soul. Uh, Two, the Bible is boring. That's wrong. Whenever a student, I say this all the time, whenever students tell me that the Bible's boring, I say, the Bible's not boring, you're boring. (laughs) The God of the universe who created everything, holds everything together, knit you together in your mom's womb, who, who knows every hair on your head, the God who, who knows everything has written words in a book that, or on your cell phone in an app, and, and you have it with you wherever you go, and you say it's boring? It's not boring. You're boring. Now, a good response to that might be, which I've heard before, I don't understand it. That's why it's boring. You not understanding it doesn't mean that the word is boring. It means that you're lazy. Because when you work at it and when you learn what it means, it's not boring. If, if we believe God is who he says he is in Scripture, if we believe that Jesus gives us life through the word, it can never be boring. Work at it. 
And the more you read it, I promise you, the less boring it becomes. Three, I don't have time. That is a common one. I, I, I say that too. But if we say that, we're liars. All right? And I'll prove it to you. All right? God's word is accessible to us in our generation uh, 24-7. It's on our phone. Everyone has one. If you don't, you're an anomaly. Uh, but it's in every language. It's, it's uh, every version that you can think of. Uh, you have time. And, and here's, here's why I know that. It, there's the goal. If, you, if that's your excuse, here's the goal that I want to give to you. If you truly have no time in the day, when you go to the bathroom, I want you to read the Bible on your phone. All right? And you might read the Bible more than you've ever read it before if you do that every time you go to the bathroom. If you have time to go to the bathroom, you have time to read the Bible. Now, that sounds like an unsacred place, but I think God would be pleased. Okay? <laughs> if you're saying you have no time, you're lying. You have time to go to the bathroom. You have time to read the Word. Four, I've read it all. It's an excuse. Uh, I've read it all. I know what's in there. So, just because you've read it before doesn't mean that you know it all. It also doesn't mean that uh, God can't use reading words that you know to change your heart in different ways over different times. Uh, God desires that we read his word, meditate on his word day and night. And, and just because we've read it before doesn't mean it can't convict us in different ways over different times. Uh, I know some people have been Christians for 40 years, and they've read the Bible over and over again. They've heard, they've heard a sermon on Psalm 19 30 times. Uh, but what's so amazing about the Bible is that it speaks truth to us constantly in different ways. I decided uh, several years ago in college that I would pick a book of the Bible to read all year, uh, and I'd focus on it, and I'd master that book. Impossible, but I'd master it. And so I picked James the first year. I picked Philippians the second year. I picked Psalms the next year, and then I started seminary, all right? And I quit because it's too hard. But I realized that if I did that every year for my entire life, it would take me 66 years to master the Bible. But the truth of the matter is is that no lifetime can, can give you uh, the time that you need to master Scripture. We'll be doing it for all of eternity. We just have the opportunity to do it now. And five, I don't understand. I don't understand what I'm reading. That is the best excuse that you can give, but there's an answer to that. Uh, I would encourage you to buy a study Bible because there's notes on every verse in the scriptures and they can help you. Uh, and I'd encourage you to get a reading plan and just stick to it. And if you don't understand something, write questions down and move on. But what I found is that when you read cover to cover, when you read the whole thing, it starts to make more sense. And when you read it again, it makes more sense. And when you read it again, it makes more sense and it, has, it brings more life. Uh, and I, I'm sure that we can come up with a bunch more excuses together. I'm sure you have your own. I have my own. These are mine, usually. Uh, but my point is this. If you're a Christian who can read the Bible and you have a Bible, there's no excuse for you not to read it. Those, seven, those six things listed in, the, in uh, verse 7 and on uh, are for you. They do, it, the word does so much for us, but we have to read it. Make this year a year that you give to Scripture. Uh, I've never met a person who has said that reading their Bible has been a waste of time for them. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the chance to, to worship together, to read your word. Uh, and, and what your word says about scripture is phenomenal, that we, uh, being rooted in it, have life, that we, that we get to know you, and that you are not some impersonal God who created the world and is distant from us, but that you are with us, and that when we read scripture, that you are in relationship with us. 
I pray that we'd be a church that never uh, sets the Bible down and lets it become dust covered, but we would be a church that loves reading the Bible and that you'd help us to understand it, that you'd help us to understand you, and that we would grow as individuals and as a church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.